0: My name is Nicola, and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. Today, my guest on the show is theoretical physicist and cosmologist, as well as an activist, perhaps, Dr. Lawrence Krauss. Lawrence, thanks very much for being with us today.
1: It's a pleasure to be with you virtually.
0: Fantastic. I've been looking forward to this for a long time, I have to say. And uh, as In preparation, I read your last two books, uh, A Universe from Nothing and The Greatest Story Ever Told So Far, as well as binging and probably at least 20 hours of uh, documentaries and uh, interviews and things that you have done in the past. Uh, And I know yesterday you had a root canal done, and I am fighting the flu, so I haven't slept in two days, but I'm sure we're still going to have a total blast and enjoy the moment.
1: (laughs) Okay, you're a masochist, but let's go.
0: I I would like to hope no, but I'd like to uh, do my best given the circumstances, even if it's not the best of circumstances. How about you?
1: Me too. That's why I'm here. Uh,
0: Excellent. Fantastic. So, uh, let me ask you, what's the motivation that gets you out of bed every morning? What are you trying to accomplish with your
1: life? (laughs) wow. Um. Well, uh, I'm trying to, uh, enjoy the universe. I'm trying to, um, enjoy the experiences I have as a human being. And that involves using my brain and, um, and have adventures. And that means intellectual adventures as well as other adventures. And, um, uh, and of course I could say I'm trying to, you know, make the world a better place, but that's kind of pompous. I, I, I do like to try to have some positive impact if I can.
0: Fantastic. And so when you say that you'd like to enjoy the universe, is intellectual understanding or some kind of knowledge an essential part of that?
1: Well, for me, it is. Uh, I I think uh, learning a little bit more about how the universe works uh, makes my understanding of myself better and my place within the cosmos. And I'm here for a little while and uh, and i i I find it enjoyable to uh, to learn more and um and that's really the reason I do science and most of the other things I do because I get pleasure from it
0: fantastic that's a very epicurean answer interestingly enough
1: well I think I mean you know I, I think I think it's an honest one in the sense that I don't think you can do science uh, you know or do anything with great intensity unless you enjoy it.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, but as a scientist, you need to measure this, right? So how do you do that? How do you know that you are or you have succeeded?
1: Well, look, you know, I just do what I can do. I think we get up and, and it's like the myth of Sisyphus, which 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 is something I've known about for many years. I've written about it twice in books, but, you know, I'm happy to keep rolling that, rock up the hill. Um, I think what I and do you're is calling I. Me I, I masochist. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I, I, I gets great pleasure in it. I. I, uh, I try to see. I, I, I do find that I have some impact. People write to me, I, I seem to sometimes um, um, uh, change the course of events. I get uh, I also. Get feedback when I'm doing science and something I've done relates to the real world when measurements confirm it, or when an experiment is done based on something I propose. Uh, so those are real bits of evidence. Um, I think uh, there's immediate feedback, of course, when I'm lecturing or speaking, which is one of the reasons why I enjoy that, because it's a, one gets an immediate feedback from the audience. Um, um, but ultimately, I think it comes down to the question of whether I'm satisfied with what i've done or i'm doing and ultimately that's the i'm the final judge
0: and what's more important to you that kind of impact that you're talking about and changing things or is it the scientific pursuit or both or w- where do they lie up on the priority
1: if they it's both of them if there were if otherwise i wouldn't do both i i find that uh, the human aspect of my life is as important as my scientific i suppose and And um, I get I get great pleasure from both and I and I'm fortunate enough to be able to do both. And um, I think. uh, I've tried to balance that sometimes and it's a difficult juggling act, but I've been fortunate that I'm able to to do it. I, I, I think constitutionally, I couldn't just lock myself away and do and and do my physics without any impact and without any interaction with the outside world well i mean you can't do physics without an interaction with the outside world we always interact with each other the community of scientists and experiments but i mean going outside of academia is i think part of some i'm constitutionally incapable of not doing that
0: Mm -hmm. and which is by the way one of the reasons why i try to make my interviews more personal uh, as well as different than the usual ones and which is why i try to watch as many as possible beforehand so that I can kind of give my audience and everyone a little glimpse of who you are as a person, first of all, perhaps what makes you tick and so on, and then as a scientist after, because I think they're very important, they're one whole part together, but each of them is important in my view.
1: Well, I think well that's I, I can understand that and and uh, and if to the extent your listeners are interested in that, then that's fine.
0: Fantastic, so. Tell us a little bit about the issue that you were doing, uh, dealing with just before we started our interview about some person about to be beheaded in Saudi Arabia or something.
1: Well, I, I got a notice from the Freedom from Religion Foundation that this young man who's, uh, who's been, who was convicted of blasphemy in 2017 and sentenced to death. And what's uh, surprising is the, Supreme, uh, the Saudi Supreme Court just upheld that sentence on April 25th, which means he's likely to be executed. So, uh, one for can blasphemy. write for blasphemy. Yeah. For writing about Muhammad or, or Islam.
0: Was he a blogger? I think
1: he may be a blogger. I, I, I believe he is, but it, the bottom line is that he's a blogger or what he is, but to be executed for saying something that you think is just, uh, the worst kind of medieval approach. And so I was urging people to write to, um, right to uh the the freedom from religion foundation has has contacts to write that you can link on to write to the saudi embassy and to the us state department and um,
0: to put pressure on saudi arabia
1: yeah yeah and as i pointed out in my in a tweet that i just sent out it's kind of ironic that donald trump is choosing saudi arabia to be the first country he visits but maybe it's not ironic maybe it's appropriate given the man Well,
0: (laughs) and by the way, how do those things make you feel uh, with respect to our civilization and what we have accomplished? I mean, it's the 21st century. We have gone further in our understanding of the universe than ever before. And yet today people are being sentenced to death for blasphemy. And, you know, you could say, well, but that's in the Middle East. But yet someone like Donald Trump gets elected for president of the United States.
1: Well, I get angry. That's why I write a lot. Of, a lot of things I write, other than the science, when I write or speak uh, about these things, is because I get angry. And and for me, writing is a uh, one way to to respond and 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 sometimes sometimes have an impact. So, I get angry, and I'm, I'm I'm angry that we live in a world where, where we we have these great opportunities to make the world a better place, and instead we turn inward into myth and superstition and bias and hatred and ignorance and greed most which is which I read about in the newspapers every day now in the United States given that many of those things are are epitomized in the man that is now in the White House.
0: So what's your biggest fear Lawrence?
1: I don't have I'm not sure I have fears but I think
0: uh, don't you have like yeah okay biggest concern like what's the worst case scenario? Well
1: there are many concerns one is the demise of democracy that could happen if uh, if there isn't if the if journalists and congress don't 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 respond appropriately to a man who doesn't understand what democracy is all about who happens to be leading the country i worry about uh about a man who clearly is in, in, in unprepared and and incompetent dealing with the challenges of an office that requires both uh, when it comes to everything from dealing with problems in this country and to North Korea, uh, a man who's impetuous, who doesn't rely on the advice of other of other people of intelligence, um, can take actions that can hurt many, many people. It's much easier to do harm than good. It's really hard to do good in, in government or administration, but it's really easy to blow it. And this is a guy who seems to do that every single day.
0: Perfectly well. <laughs> and, and that's not no laughing matter. but. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm, you know, I live in Canada here, uh, and I'm about to ask you about the Canadian connection in your past too, but even I get scared and we get scared because I think Canada is too close to the United States for, for safety, (laughs) to be honest with you. But tell us a little bit about growing up in Canada and the Canadian connection in your past, because most people are not aware of that
1: yeah i think most people aren't aware well a lot of people aren't aware that i grew up in canada i grew up i was born in the united states but i grew up in toronto i was i went to high school there and i went to university in canada in ottawa um and i uh, uh i studied not only physics and math but history and canadian history and so i could speak french but uh, i think the main thing that 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 growing up in canada did for me well there's two things growing up it's really interesting to live in different countries. It's a really useful thing. But one of the things that growing up in Canada did because a parliamentary democracy is really much more based on viewing government as, as acting on behalf of people. So in, in a parliamentary democracy, people don't view the government as the enemy. They view government is there to help make the, make the place safer and better. And that mentality of course has stayed with me and it's, and it's very foreign here in the United States where, the mentality is that government is the enemy. Government is intrusive. Government should stay out of your life. Instead of government should help um, help people who can't help themselves, help the safety and security, welfare and health of all the citizens in that in that in society. So that mentality uh, is part of what, what I got from growing up in Canada. But also, you know, I grew up in Canada. I was uh, quite anti-American when I was younger, and then um, I moved to the United States and. And of course, I am an American citizen as well as a Canadian citizen. And what I learned was that, you know, there's good things and bad things about every country. And, and when I moved to the United States, uh, there were many things I like better about the United States and Canada. There are many things about Canada I like better than the United States. Um, and what you learn is that this, this petty nationalism that people have is really just misplaced. It's an accident of birth. If I'd been born 400 miles one direction or another I would have been just Canadian or just American and and uh, I would you know feel I'm sure grow up with that kind of patriotic nonsense but but uh, but it's an accident of birth every country has its good things and bad things There's some countries that are undeniably worse than others like in my opinion Saudi Arabia for example speaking of what we just spoke about but but um, I think it's really important to realize that these uh, that that this this kind of us versus them mentality doesn't help. And one, that's one of the wonderful things about science is it brings people together, unlike most other areas, unlike politics and religion that tend to separate people. Mm-hmm.
0: Let me ask you another uh, sort of uh, audience question, uh, sort of in the fun fact category. Uh, and someone was asking me on Facebook, why do you? always seem to wear red sneakers
1: on stage (laughs) I don't always wear red sneakers I wear many different colors red has been my color of choice lately but I have about 30 different pairs of converse sneakers that I started to wear once I started to wear them people started to notice them and it became kind of a brand and then I and some people gave me sneakers that were different colors and I enjoy them Lately, I've enjoyed my red ones because uh, they. I'm tired when I've been traveling, and they wake me up when I look down.
0: <laughs> that's 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 nice. Okay, so uh, let me ask you: What's the greatest story ever told?
1: <laughs> the story that I just wrote. <laughs> um, uh, the the greatest story ever told is the story of how we've learned about our place in the universe. That. The, the story, the Im- remarkable story over many centuries of humanity's effort to understand itself and the forces that govern the universe in a brave way to bo- go where nature took us, not where we wanted to go. And, and often to, to blind alleys and dead ends and to be dragged kicking and screaming by, by, by nature to the, to, to, in the right direction. And then to be willing to build the most complicated machines that humans have ever built to try and test these ideas. Uh, It's an amazing story and full of surprises and remarkable ideas that are as interesting as any that humans have ever come up with, which is why I think should be shared more broadly. So is that the human story or a story of the universe? Well, they're inextricably linked, aren't they? Uh, We are part of the universe and to understand ourselves, we need to understand the universe. As Carl Sagan once said, to make an apple pie, the recipe to make an apple pie is First start with the universe. (laughs) Yeah, I love that quote too. Uh, And
0: you know, what? one funny and kind of strange thing that I noticed when I was reading that book of yours, uh, your latest book, which is uh, called uh, The Greatest Story Ever Told So Far, uh, is that you have a lot of biblical quotes, almost every other chapter or something like that seems to start with a biblical quote.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Why? Well, because the because in the United States at least the greatest story ever told was entitled a movie about the life of Jesus, and what I, and so for many people many people think the Bible is the greatest story ever told, and 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 I think the story of the real universe is more interesting and but the Bible is full of rich language and I thought it would be interesting to to mine the language of the Bible when talking about the real story to, to talk about so to, in a sense to, to to remind people that that the Bible was an early effort by people to understand the world. And we've gone, we've gone beyond it, but we should you know, and but nevertheless, the, 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 the literature is, is, is literature and can be quoted from as well as anything else. And I thought it would be appropriate to, to do that. And there's lots of good quotes, you can use the Bible. That's also why I chose the section headings to be Genesis, Exodus and Revelations, because it also seemed appropriate. Some people have objected to that as if I'm making fun of religion. I'm, I'm not. It was an appropriate title. And I'm just using historical allegory. I'm just using um, scholarship. Scholarship. No, I mean, if I quoted, if I quoted Shakespeare, people would complain. So anyway. Except Shakespeare is much better than the Bible.
0: Of course. But I don't <laughs> see why would people complain you're using Shakespeare? I think they would love it.
1: No, no, people wouldn't complain if I use Shakespeare, but somehow people think uh, using the Bible is some using those words from the Bible is somehow, you know, people always complain if in any way suggest um, the Bible is anything less than sacred when it really is just a book. Aren't you
0: afraid that if you were living in a country like Saudi Arabia, you'd be up for blasphemy charges and possibly beheading?
1: Oh, absolutely. I'm. That's one of the reasons I'm happy. I mean, there are many aspects of the United States uh, that are upsetting. But one of the wonderful things is, and Canada too, one of the wonderful things is that I can speak to you about these issues and on the whole, at least at this time, not worry about those kind of things.
0: And yet the United States is by far the most religious developed country that I know of.
1: Yeah, it is. And there are people who want to restrict freedom of people like myself. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if ultimately one of those Bozo's proposed a blasphemy law. Uh, I don't think. I think. Thankfully, we have a constitution. At this point, we have a rule of law. But the president just uh,
0: allowed new uh, political campaigning powers. Well, of course,
1: he allows, he allows. Yeah, the claim that churches can do, you know, endorse candidates, which is disgusting, because all other non- non-profits can't. But you know. But the point is that that uh, we have a rule of law and happily I think if there was ever a a blasphemy like law it would be argued to be unconstitutional unlike Canada by the way which still does have a blasphemy law in its books which is an embarrassment but I hope that'll be removed soon.
0: Thankfully it's not enforced for a while now.
1: Most of them are The one in Ireland wasn't enforced until someone at least uh, uh, pointed out that Stephen Fry should be tried for it and then of course what it did was raise the Raise the profile of the law and I hope the effective it will be to to uh, cause the law to be removed from and I expect it will. I hope so. Now
0: with respect to the greatest story ever told, Ray Kurzweil might actually suggest that the greatest story ever told is the story of what he calls the technological singularity and that kind of progression from dumb, unintelligent, stupid universe, to organic life, first single cell organism, multicellular organisms, eventually intelligent biology, and then eventually intelligent machines, with this progression where in the final stage, as he calls it, the universe wakes up, and we don't even have anything uh, stupid anymore, but we even have smart dust. Everything becomes smart in the universe. What's your take on that?
1: It sounds almost biblical. I don't, I don't know. It sounds a little, um, um a little unreal. I, I, I think, I think the story of, of how the universe, how life on earth arose in the universe is an amazing story. And I've written that too, in a book called Adam, how the, how Adam's in the universe eventually. And, and but the point is we're not the end, whatever Ray Kurzweil may think, we're not the end point of, of, of life or the universe and the Earth will come and go and the universe will continue. So it's not as if we're some high point where the universe suddenly reaches a crescendo and then and then goes away. I think we're a momentary uh, point of light where remarkable things can happen and who knows what the future will bring. Um, and whether who knows what the dominant what the dominant source of intelligence will be on Earth whether it's carbon based or silicon based. But uh, so I, I, I distrust claims about the future, and and this notion of singularity I find a little strained. I do think AI is a self-programmable artificial intelligence can progress remarkably fast, and it's not clear what will happen. Um, it's certainly pretty. It, it's hard to imagine biology can keep up with that, um, but we'll see. And.
0: What's your kind of, because some of the criticism towards the technological singularity idea, and you you even use the word biblical, uh, but people like, for example, Jerome uh, Lanier, have said that that's like the church of robotics. Others have called it uh uh, rapture for geeks or the rapture of the nerds or something like that. Do you think that that's a new kind of techno religion?
1: Well, I think it's a claim about something for which there's no evidence, if you want to call that religion than you can Mm. Uh, but but there's no evidence of a singularity right now there's it's we should be prepared for what may come when uh, as as mental machine become more intelligent and autonomous and that's and i certainly do and one of the one of the things my origins project recently ran was a meeting on just that question the future of artificial intelligence it's an area that i'm thinking more and more about Um, uh, and um And uh, uh, I think, um, uh, so it's it's an issue, but, and fortune favors the prepared mind, as I often say, but to make grand claims about what's gonna come, I don't trust any futurist, whether it's in this case, Ray Kurzweil or anyone else.
0: Uh
1: Futurists usually miss the most important stuff. We don't have flying cars now, we have the internet, but most of the science fiction of the 1950s was about flying cars
0: yeah you know i i have to agree with you i've evolved tremendously since i started this podcast in the last 210 episodes i started very much pro singularity back in the day and in time as i've learned more and i've talked to more people and i've seen more i have gotten to be more and more and more kind of on the skeptical and on the moderate end of things uh um, and so my view and perception has shifted tremendously but uh Let's let's talk about the narrower issue then, the issue about artificial intelligence. I watched your phenomenal kind of discussion at uh, uh, the Arizona State University Origins uh, meetup, uh, and I suggest people check it out. It was very good. But why did you decide to get involved in artificial intelligence? Because there's a number of people who tell me there's something about physicists, be it Stephen Hawking, be it Max Tegmark, be it like whoever else you want to name that are getting tremendously involved in AI. And to be honest, I've talked to some uh AI experts and they're not so impressed by that.
1: <laughs> well look I look I, I um I'm not it's an important issue. And what I did was bring AI experts together to talk about it. Um and and um and and uh some of the issues are physics ones, uh, having maybe having to do with quantum computing, for example. Uh, information processing is a, it, it, after all, is a, is a physical process, and people from Feynman on have thought about the nature of it and how to how to do it. Uh, so many people in the computing world came from physics, as in the world of biology, but I, I wanted to do it because I thought it was an interesting issue and. I I get asked a lot about it because I'm a scientist who gets asked questions by journalists and and people ask me questions about AI, and it's nice to be a little more informed about it. But my, my origins project looks at everything from the origins of the universe to the origins of early modern humans and 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 other things and origins of the future. And so this is certainly our future will depend crucially on AI. And so to the extent that my institute looks at those things, it was perfectly appropriate to have a meeting on it. I don't uh, claim to be an expert on it. And so far, I haven't really written much about it. Mm-hmm.
0: And and where would you put that on the priority list, w- whether on the existential threats list that uh, because I had a bit of a debate with Jan Tallinn on my show uh, as to whether that's the greatest existential risk or not. And my opinion has changed that it's not the greatest li- risk at all right now.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I've talked to Jan about this. Jan was at my meeting and I've talked to Jan right. and. As you know I'm chair of the board of the Bulletin Atomic Scientists and and we look at existential risks I still think nuclear war is the most urgent existential risk facing humanity
0: same with me and I argue with him on that
1: and and um but I do think emerging technologies have to be watched for and for the first time ever in our determination of the doomsday clock we included the possibility of cyber terrorism as a as a factor the fact that cyber attacks had undermine some people's confidence in democracy was already having an impact. It's the first time we ever we ever included that. So we'll okay. see. But
0: you you said that it's not there at the top of the priority list.
1: Well, it's it's something that needs to be watched. I don't think sure. it's an urgent issue right now, but we have to we have to watch it.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. And you mentioned the importance of quantum computing here. Let me break this kind of, which is a nice segue to the next thing I wanted to talk to you about. So let me break it into two parts. The first is, what's your take on uh, quantum computers such as the D-Wave
1: quantum machine? Do you know anything about it? Uh, I, 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 not a lot, except to know except that, that there are many people who claim it's, it mimics quantum computing and not a quantum computer. And, and I, that everything I know suggests to me that that's likely the case, that it mimics a mimics quantum computer, but it isn't a full quantum computer. I mean, to do quantum computing, you really need a isolated quantum mechanical system where coherence is, uh, 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 is preserved, the wave function remains coherent, and and um, entanglement r- remains among all the states, and that's very hard to produce. And if it were easy, it would have already been done by a lot of people, and it's taking a while. and and I think the jury's still out to, to see how practical it will be. But I'm much more encouraged now than I was, say, five years ago about about the possibilities as people look at topological, um, possible topological qubits and things where where you imagine that quantum mechanical coherence could be preserved in in a way that would be difficult otherwise. That sounds technical, probably maybe too technical for some of your listeners. But the bottom line is that a quantum computer can only do quantum can only be a quantum computer if it remains quantum mechanical and systems that I- interact with the outside world as uh, strongly and uh, and uh, uh, tend to uh, not be quantum mechanical which is why you one of the reasons why you and i don't behave quantum mechanically mm-hmm.
0: you know the strange thing is this that you know I-, I talked to michio kaku about this and a number of other physicists some of them here from the perimeter institute in ontario everyone is extremely skeptical however as a non-expert outside observer here's the commonalities Uh, none of the people I talked to ever bothered to read the actual papers and there's over 70 peer review papers published on the topic by D-Wave and actually I had uh, Jordi Rose the CTO of uh, D-Wave on my show for two and a half hours and we went into decoherence problems how they solved it And all kinds of things like that. And his his argument was like, look, if you have a hundred million dollars, you can recreate everything that we've done. And
1: uh, actually, most recently, look, it's interesting. But my the bottom line is, look, I don't have time to explore everything. I'm not, I'm not, not a person whose primary research is in quantum computing. At various times in my life, I thought I might want to do that. I haven't. Um, So I can only what I can do is, 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 is is look for signs that, uh, that breakthroughs have been made and I don't see those signs yet, so.
0: Well, uh, about maybe five months ago, Google came up with an announcement that uh, they have solved the problem which proves that the, uh, because there are three quantum machines produced and sold so far and each of them is like 20 million or something like that. One is at Lockheed Martin, one is at NASA Ames cap- campus with Google and one is at the University of California. And they supposedly solved the problem a hundred million times faster than we can solve with the best supercomputers today. And so, supposedly, that was one one such proof.
1: Maybe, maybe. Well, you now know, we'll see. see when they can solve physics problems I know about. Then I'll, then I'll, then I'll. Um, but you yeah. know, I'm, I'm agnostic about it. But uh, you know, I, I think. Um, Breakthroughs are being made, and and a lot of money and time and effort and and intelligence is being put in, to um, to the the whole the whole thing. So um, it'll it it'll, it it'll it progress will be made, and you know I am always skeptical. Let me put it that way.
0: That's that, that that and that's fine because of course Michio Kaku was saying, you know, if they if that was true, there would be Nobel prizes given to those people.
1: Well, it's nice to see yeah. Monsieur Carpent being skeptical. I don't think skepticism is one of his side points. <laughs> okay.
0: Okay. We'll get to that in a second. But the other part of the quantum realm is actually a person who is not too far away from you in Arizona, that I interviewed some time ago, uh, Doctor Stuart Hameroff.
1: Yeah, I don't really want to spend any time with him. I don't think he has. A, I don't think he's ever said anything worth listening to.
0: But he has a very famous collaborator.
1: Uh, 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 yeah, big deal. So he's got a great collab, famous collaborator who also, by the way, has when it comes to things like that, made an incredible number of mistakes. So being famous doesn't make you right. And Roger Penrose is a great mathematician. When it comes to physics, most of the things he's actually written about when it comes to measurable reality have been wrong. He's one of the funny guys when it was who whose physics intuition doesn't seem to be very good.
0: I see. So you're not you're not a fan of the Hammer of Penrose Quantum Theory of Consciousness, clearly.
1: I I've, I've, I've listened to it and it sounds like complete gobbledygook.
0: <laughs> well, to the again, uh, sideline observer, there are a lot an awful lot of commonalities with say Hinduism or Yoga or ancient Eastern sort of philosophy, like and the idea of Chi or qi.
1: Yeah, yeah, and all of that seems like gobbledygook to me too. So. <laughs> so, all of it, mash it all together, put it in a room, and let them talk to each other, and the rest of us will get on with reality.
0: All right. So, so then, when going back to artificial intelligence, then. Uh, is are you agreeing with Daniel Dennett that consciousness is an illusion and it's not a, a problem? We need to be concerning ourselves with
1: well look. I don't know. I look conscious We don't even know what consciousness is so I don't like I don't make statements about it. Con- I don't know whether I mean by consciousness is an illusion I'm uh, I I'm conscious so uh, it, and, and to what consciousness is a very difficult problem I'm a physicist. I deal with easy problems and therefore um, I I don't study consciousness that as someone once pointed out to me, there's many, many books about consciousness because we don't understand it. In, there's one, you know, in principle you only need one book on quantum mechanics because we understand it. If we understood consciousness, there'd be one good book on it. But there's instead lots of people trying to. And I don't, I don't mean to make fun of them. It's a very difficult problem, and I'm glad people are tackling it. But it's very premature to, to argue that we understand it. Now I know Dan, and I think Dan thinks very carefully about these issues much more carefully about them than I do, uh, 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 thoughtfully anyway, he's devoted a lot more time. And, and that's great, but it's a, it's a, it's the early stages of understanding these things. And it's a very complicated, clearly the brain is very complicated. And, and, and to make grand statements about consciousness at this point seem to me to be premature as well.
0: Well, let me grab the quantum mechanics point of view, because, um, I had, uh, a well-known uh, quantum uh, professor, uh, whose name I'm going to mention in a second, who told me straight up in my face that uh, he knows that the Christian God exists, and I don't, because he understands quantum mechanics, and I don't.
1: Well, that's uh, nice.
0: And if you haven't figured out who that is yet, it's Frank J. Tipler.
1: Yeah, well, i you can watch a debate I had with Frank, who's a, a kindly of old gentleman, and I hated to destroy him, but I did.
0: <laughs> so, so there is hope for me then that, that that there is no such deity that he claims, and it's not stemming from my ignorance about quantum mechanics. No, no. I think
1: uh, Frank is a, a deep, firm believer in, the, and and in in a way that firm believers are, which is they know the answer before you ask the question, and um, and uh, and therefore whatever is discovered will validate whatever they believed in in in, in advance.
0: Well, in my show, he made the exact opposite claim against the scientific community. He said, "I renounce my Christian faith, but following the evidence led me to return to it." Whereas my scientific colleagues refuse to be scientific and they're atheist by conviction rather than by following the evidence. That was his claim,
1: anyway. Yeah, well, of course, people claim that, but 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 he's the only person you can you know. Look, the point is, when people look at these things, they can ask. If he's the only person that believes that, <laughs> then maybe you should wonder. <laughs> if he got if he convinced one other person to believe it, maybe, maybe there might be something. But since no one else buys it, it you know, you should be highly skeptical.
0: So is that one way we can sort of differentiate between good science and bad science? I mean, where the majority rules?
1: I don't think it's a majority case. Look, you just have to be skeptical and you have to ask yourself. Um, Has have these ideas had an impact on the community and if they haven't had an impact on the community then then you should be at least be skeptical because You know, it's true that scientists, you know, have fads and other things, but 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 bottom line is people make progress and people make progress by proving their colleagues wrong So it's not as if people huddle up and don't want to hear new ideas and so one of the ways if you're trying to understand if an idea uh, might be interesting or productive is to see what impact it's had on people who spend their life thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Interesting. And perhaps now is the time to talk a little bit more about science and the, the sort of the strengths and weaknesses thereof. Um, because one thing that I've noticed as an observation after talking to maybe 210 of the best scientists around the world that The cutting edge of diverse fields is that first we hardly ever have a a lot of agreement but second even more importantly my personal impression is that emotion needs logic for breakfast every time
1: reason is the slave of passion as as hume said i think it's hume but anyway reason is the slave of passion fine that's true but but never that's what i my book the greatest story ever told so far shows that scientists are people scientists get stuck and 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 fixated on on one approach that may be wrong, but eventually the science overcomes, the process of science overcomes that. So arguing that scientists may be not always rational does not is not does not impugn science. Because the scientific process eventually overcomes that and we get real progress. And and that's how the field works. And it comes from from people being skeptical of other people's ideas, testing them, et cetera, and eventually realizing what works and what doesn't work, which is ultimately the arbiter of, of truth in science, and um, and so, you know, and I and I think it's unfair to say scientists don't agree. Uh, we agree on almost everything, except maybe things at the very forefront, and then we, you know, because we don't know the answer, we take many different approaches.
0: And then, in your view, what's the greatest strengths and weaknesses, if there are any, of science? You, you, you said about the strengths that we always kind of, in the end, come up with the right answer in the way right one
1: of the weaknesses of science is it presumes that the in, that the investigators are honest one of the weaknesses is that you assume when people write a paper they're not lying overtly and they may be fooling themselves that happens but they're not openly trying to mislead so when someone does try and mislead it can go quite a while before the before they're found out there so are examples have happened in physics for example eventually they're found out because reality comes and bites you in the butt but 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 we presume honesty and integrity, and and um, that presumption is not always true. So, in
0: other words, are you saying the limitations are with our humanity rather than the science itself?
1: Well, no. The scientific process presumes full disclosure, honesty, etc. So it's part of the nature of the scientific process to presume that, um, and and so that's one of this one of the. One of the weaknesses of the scientific process is it presumes that, but not everyone, not everyone who's doing it fulfills that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh.
0: And, uh, okay, but let, let's talk a little bit perhaps about, see, I'm just a simple philosopher kind of guy. I love science. I'm a big science fan. Last week I was interviewing Bill Knight, the science guy which was... He knows
1: some science, not a lot, but he knows some.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we we talked about the celebrity part and the scientist part, too, in that conversation a bit, but let me talk about something that you've discussed with... You
1: know, I I don't want to put Bill down. He's a wonderful spokesman. He's a wonderful cheerleader for science, and it's really important. But he's not a scientist, and and I I don't think he pretends to be, so... Mm -hmm.
0: He said he's an educator.
1: He's an educator. He's... He's been an educator, and and, um, and he's certainly uh, inspired a lot of people to think about science. Yeah, anyway, go on.
0: Yeah, So, uh, but, but my concern or my point was this. Uh, is it not the case that s- technology in particular, but also science in general, is more about the how? Of course it's about how, because the why doesn't have any meaning. Right, so tell us a little bit about that. Why does the why not have a meaning? Well, why
1: purpose? Well, generally, why presumes purpose? The why question generally means how. Why does why is the heart divided into ventricles? You don't you don't mean that there's someone who decided to divide it. It's it's what you know. Ultimately, how does the heart function? Is what you really want to know. Um, you know, why is the sky blue? You don't think it's blue because God painted it blue. Maybe some people do, but.
0: When I say, why is Lawrence Krauss a scientist?
1: What you really mean is the process of how. What are the process? Well, maybe you mean why, but what really it means, what in my background and my my influences. And so what you really care about is the history of Lawrence Krauss and the way his brain works, maybe. And all of that is how. No one decided that Lawrence Krauss was going to be a scientist. It happened.
0: Okay, so is there, okay, so I'm just trying to figure out is that a deterministic kind of answer? Because if there were 10 other Lawrence Krausses in your journey, some of them would have made the choice to be a scientist and some of them would not have.
1: It's because they wouldn't have all had the same experiences. So if we have the
0: same experience, we will all make the same choice?
1: Well, look, look, the world's a complicated place, and as you know, a butterfly flapping its wings in Oklahoma can result ultimately in a in a tornado somewhere else. So 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 it's so complicated that it's impossible to to practically to 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 derive a deterministic explanation of why things happen at a complex level like human beings. So there are many things that impact on my decision, but I don't I but I don't doubt that 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 ultimately my decision is based on many, many, uh, a confluence of many, 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 many things that came together. Um, And, um, and so the world is deterministic in that sense. I can't determine why I did it. And, and moreover, you, from a practical perspective, you'd never be able to reproduce all of them exactly again anyway. So it's a moot point. The world is deterministic at a fundamental level, but at the level of you and I, the world is for all intents and purposes, identical to a world in which we have free will. So. There's, they're both, so, you know, so we may as well act as if we have free will, even though at a fundamental level, the world is determined by the laws of physics. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. To be honest, that's the predominant position pretty much most people that I interview with. Well, good. It's, the, it's
1: I think it's the correct one too. So there you go. Yeah. Hmm. Uh And
0: let, let's let talk a, a little then about the other questions. Let's say if the why always comes down to actually essentially the how, then what about the where and what, right? Because let's say we're building a rocket and you are the scientist, you're building the engine. And how is your science going to help us which way to turn the rocket to? In other
1: words, where? The question where? It's always based on evidence of empirical reality. It's based on observation and evidence. So we, we look out at the universe and we, and from that we determine where the most productive and interesting opportunities are to explore both locally and globally. And those uh, we, we, those hopefully influence the decision on where rockets will be sent. So
0: in other words, you think like Sam Harris that uh, science in itself can be sufficient to provide a complete sort of basis for our ethics. In other words, if we agree on the factual statements or facts themselves, I think a reason is I think
1: I think largely ethics. I'm glad you mentioned ethics and not morality because I don't know what morality is. But okay. ethics, I think what you do is you base it on evidence and reason. Um, can go. I don't know if it goes completely all the way. I mean, I don't know if you can get ought from is. Maybe you can't get off from is. But what's one thing for certain is you can't get ought without is. You can't determine how to act appropriately if you don't have evidence of the consequences of your actions. And so, evidence-based understanding of the consequences of your interactions, followed by reason, rationality based on trying to understand and extrapolate what those consequences are, certainly go a long way.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that entirely. I would say they certainly go a long way. I wouldn't say they're sufficient. I would say they're absolutely necessary.
1: Yeah, well, they may they may be. That's a way of thinking about it. They're definitely necessary. They may not be sufficient. I I uh, I, uh, because I do know that reason is is a slave of passion. At some level, we rationalize why we do what we do. But I do think ultimately, uh, you can make you can make rational arguments that all point towards certain behaviors that can be defended on the basis of reason. Maybe not all behaviors, but almost all of them. I see. I see.
0: Yeah, because this is the next question, uh, then is like, where's the place of philosophy in your view? Because obviously I've put out my biases here that I think this is where philosophy fits. It fits especially not philosophy in general, but ethics in particular.
1: Well, look, look, it's great that there are philosophers who look at these ethical questions and try and analyze and critique critique exactly what decisions are made or, or makeable, and that's great. Um, that's, that's an area where philosophy, which I think of as critical reasoning and thinking, is useful. It, 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 it complements the knowledge that we get from science um, and, and allows us to reflect on it. That's what philosophy does. And it's useful in those areas. It's not useful in physics, but it's useful in those other areas.
0: Oh, let me get this right. So it's not useful in physics, but
1: well, I mean, the, the the philosophy that's useful in physics is what we call natural philosophy, which is physics. Okay, we 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 look at the world, we we analyze it, we make predictions, and we test it. But 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 the philosophy of science right now does not drive the field, does not lead to new questions of interest. It's really the physicists. No physicists read philosophy of science, so it's not as if it's not important in its own right for other philosophers of science just for the process of physics it's proceeded to the point there are areas of science where questions aren't well defined and those questions philosophy can play a valuable role in but by physics the questions are very well defined by the physicists and therefore the field proceeds independent of of philosophers who may be studying the implications of physics maybe they come up with interesting reflections on that but those reflections have not, in my knowledge, in the history of science in the last 100 years, impacted on, on the way physics is done or the results of physics derived.
0: But the point here is that, you know, physics, just like all other things, operates within a field of limited resources. And to apply those resources, like let's say whether to build a large hadron collider or something else, you have to answer the questions like, what is good? Or what is more important? No, no.
1: What's produ- we don't talk about good in physics. We talk about what's productive. That, we, that, that's a, that we, can have we can determine rationally on the basis of science. There aren't philosophers in peer review panels. There are physicists. And, and they're the ones who make the decisions about what's happening. And maybe you should say that maybe you think that's bad, but it's just the way it works. Because address the questions. You can't ask whether an experiment will be productive without knowing a lot of physics. I agree,
0: but you don't know where to turn your gaze, and for example, that's why Albert Einstein was so disgusted by most of his uh, colleagues when...
1: Sorry, we know exactly where to turn our gaze. We know exactly, we built the Large Hadron Collider, not because some philosopher said it's a good idea to do that, but because because the experiments that had happened at earlier accelerators drove us to say we need to build an accelerator to answer this question. We built the Hubble Space Telescope, not because some philosopher said, you know, the sky is a beautiful place. Uh, but, but in fact, what we need is we need it to go above the atmosphere. And we're building the James Webb Space Telescope to look at a, a, re, a region of, 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 of the spectrum of light that we can't see on Earth. These are physics questions, and they're well answered by physicists.
0: I totally agree with you, but they're not the only questions that physicists address and apply themselves to. Well, you, you give me an example. Well, I am. So, for example, Albert Einstein uh, was disgusted by his colleagues who, who, on the one hand, created incredible breakthroughs in chemistry, for example, and you you quote many of them in your own books, actually, uh, by by uh, creating artificial fertilizers and ammonia out of thin air. And on the other hand, going and creating chemical and other weapons of mass destruction to kill tens of thousands of people on the battlefields of Europe in World War One and World War Two, And so... Uh,
1: but the decision to... Look, science can be used for good or bad. It shouldn't be up to the scientists to decide how the technology of science is used. Why not? That's why we, in a democracy it should be up to the public.
0: No, but, but, but you are a, a sort of a rational uh, agent who possesses your own agency. So are you saying that If the government comes to you and says, Lawrence, help us create a a nuclear bomb of a new kind that we can start applying in Iraq right now and in Afghanistan, and you would say yes?
1: No, I'd say no.
0: Why? Isn't that precisely?
1: That's an ethical question. But it has nothing to do with the physics. It has to do completely with societal questions. And what I'm telling you is when physicists are going ahead and doing physics, they're driven by physics questions. The government doesn't come and tell them, Look, we need a new body. And some physicists they do, and that's their some engineers mostly. But the people doing the fundamental physics are being driven by questions of fundamental physics. When it comes to application and technology, people and 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 business, there are lots of other factors that come in that are beyond physics. Those questions have to do with ethics, among other issues, the economics, politics, all sorts of questions. And then and that and that's why physicists have no monopoly on or on on answering those questions and in my opinion for better or worse even though democracy seems to be struggling um, what we as physicists can do is provide the knowledge and the education so that people can make rational decisions based on that based on many other actions and the public can ultimately decide if they want to build a goddamn bomb that blows up Afghanistan and and hopefully an educated public wouldn't
0: because, as you see, Donald Trump's already been using the mother of all bombs, which is the largest conventional... Donald bomb.
1: Trump is a man who has no knowledge and no education.
0: Yeah, but, but my point is that there is a very strong scientific apparatus behind DARPA and behind the uh, military-industrial complex, which creates those
1: tremendously powerful weapons. Now look, there are some people who decide... These are brilliant scientists. Well, on the whole, usually the most, look, no, that's not true on the whole. The most brilliant scientists are usually are usually not in the defense laboratories, except in the case of the Manhattan Project, Well, yeah, which was a unique, which Einstein was part of, too. If he, I mean, indirectly, in the sense of what he proposed, letter, he created it. Yeah. His letter is what was responsible for the Manhattan Project. Let's face it. It was and had he not been an enemy alien, he probably would have been a part of it. Those people felt a compelling moral outrage that drove them to do something, which in retrospect they may not have done, and 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 with cooler minds they may not have produced it.
0: Yeah, Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer became a pacifist,
1: among other things, that the Nazi Germany was also developing a nuclear weapon, and in that case, the rational decision in their minds was to beat them to it. Now, there are lots of historical and sociological factors that go into that. But that was the only time I know of where the best scientists, the best physicists were actually directly working on a weapon. Generally, the physics is done. It's brilliant engineers. But bottom line is that they're not bad people. But that's, uh, of course. Right. That they think it's important to defend the country. And if other people are developing weapons, they should develop weapons. And that's a decision that that each person has to make on their own mind. In my since I happen to think in general that that military solutions to problems are not the best ones i won't i would work on them yeah i, I agree with you entirely but my point now, is if that you were in a situation like the manhattan project again like the world war ii where, where 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 it appeared that some truly evil force was developing a weapon and that and that i could contribute to try to stave off that would i have to rethink that maybe i'm not in that situation so i can't say how i would act um if I was, but I, I wouldn't dismiss out of hand the likelihood that I would that I would participate. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. My point was simply that, you know, scientists tend to make decisions that are based on their own values and personal ethics, whether it's right they. or wrong. We and all That do. has tremendous consequences. And, and actually, the more brilliant or smart you are, the more damage you can do, given the, the wrong sort of circumstances, if you will.
1: Things, but but again, let's let's separate the physics that from the applications or the social or the social activities. Physicists make decisions based on lots of a, lots of human things, including which area of physics they want to work in. But the physics is independent of that,
0: right? But my point is that today it's not only about physics, but it's say about artificial intelligence. And let's say if you are doing artificial intelligence today, most of the money comes from DARPA or DARPA-like. Ventures. I'm not sure about
1: that. I think there's a heck of a lot of private money involved right now in artificial intelligence.
0: Right. Probably okay. for
1: the DARPA, yes. I would suspect.
0: Yes, yes, you're correct. I should qualify that. It used to be the case that it was mostly DARPA and stuff like that, maybe five years, eight years ago. Now it's, and back in the day, especially when I interviewed Dr. Marvin Minsky, he was actually complaining that that was pretty much the only money in the 1970s and the 1980s, was pretty much. Uh, coming from the office of the Navy for his first research and, and stuff like that that he was sharing with us, but yeah, well, I won't take money from
1: the Navy or, uh, or and I did once an advisory thing for DARPA on a very obscure esoteric question and and, uh, and um, yeah, and it was not a pleasant experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it had to do with trying to understand how we could detect neutrinos which and which things might work and not and and uh, those undone, those in the end, may have a military application from the point of view of trying to attack nuclear weapons explosions or something like that, but, but, uh, I was just not trying to, uh, uh, but it wasn't a pleasant experience and I wouldn't do it again. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, because, uh, one of the concerns is that, you know, uh, we are right now, well, the claim is anyway, that we are right now in a sort of a tremendously disruptive period in the history of humanity. Uh, we we'll and- see.
1: <laughs> we'll see.
0: Well, uh, and the argument is that one of the potential explanations for the Fermi paradox is that, you know, civilizations are born and live and they die, possibly in sort of self-destruction mode when their technological prowess exceeds their capacity to control it. And that would be one way to explain the Fermi paradox, for example.
1: It's right? one way, but there are many other good ways too. So I don't think it's all—it's all—it's all very speculative, and I don't see any any definitive answers uh, about it. Uh, we'll find out.
0: <laughs> yes, we will for sure. But
1: I don't—you know—I mean, it's one answer that you, one answer to the Fermi par- paradox is that intelligent civilizations don't survive. That's a simple answer to the Fermi, but there are lots of other answers. And so I don't think we have any definitive evidence either way. It is true that if we look at the our society right now, we certainly can't seem to act globally to deal with global problems so I'm not optimistic but i would I wouldn't say out of hand that, that there's that's proof that that um uh uh that that's proof that that we that we can't
0: mm-hmm. i and I agree and I surely hope so uh with you. And I also agree with you with the sort of anti teleological point of view of less towards more intelligence, which Ray Kurzweil tends to take uh, in his work. And, and I, which is why I kind of very much like uh, your book that we have a universe from uh, possibly emerged from nothing, uh, and, and that we are actually an accident, uh, you know, and there's no trend towards. Uh, from lesser towards greater intelligence, which is pure teleology, um, in, in my view. Uh, so I, I recommend people check out uh, your book for that. Uh, and which, which, by the way, I also have to say, I've read a bunch of, well, I always read a number of books b- before I interview the people that I interview, and it is rare for me to see a scientist who writes as well as you do. It's almost unique.
1: Well, thank you I, I, I appreciate that I I, I I think you get better writing by writing, and uh, I think maybe the fact that I used to do history helps, but but um, but I certainly work at it and I, and I read a lot and, and I appreciate your comments. but
0: Yeah, no, but that's precisely my next point. So is it is that the history background coming towards it and, and because, in a way, you're telling, a, telling us a history, you're telling us a story the story of the universe and how we started discovering little bits and pieces based on the evidence that we discovered and tested and so on and so on via the scientific method.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I'm trying to show by example how, how it works and the real story so that people... Because really the real problem with the way we teach science is we don't teach the scientific process. And it's a scientific process that's more important than the facts, the facts you can get from your iPhone or or facts the, what, what determines your ability to determine which, whether it's facts or nonsense, is a scientific process.
0: Are you familiar with the work of Yuval Noah Harari?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, his books, uh, Sapiens, and, and and I think his new one, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, because uh, I, I also thought he talks in the beginning of uh, one of those books that uh, you see uh, cosmology is basically the history of the universe, or the story of the universe. Chemistry is basically the story of how the elements come together. Biology is simply the story of how organisms came to be. History is just the story of how human societies came to be and evolved, and so on and so on. You know, in a way, he says science is also a kind of a story, a myth, just like all those other stories. what What's your take on that?
1: that no, but that's a mistake. Uh, it's a story. Of course it's a story. That's why I call it the greatest story ever told. But it's more than a story. It's a story that makes predictions. And that's the big difference. That's the difference between science and religion. It's, or, or literature. Science is a story that has logical connections that makes predictions you can test. And that's what makes science so powerful. Weren't for that, science would just be like every other aspect of human activity. But what makes science so powerful it, it, to have an impact on our society is it makes predictions you could test, and those predictions allow us to develop new technologies that make the world in principle a better place? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And with respect to those predictions, can you perhaps and you said that you are staying away from predictions and futures, but can you say what the science would suggest would be the next things in our story of the hour of our universe? that That maybe you can speculate a bit what might be coming next
1: no well i I will and I won't um i I've, i you may have heard me say this before if you will listen to me, but I'll say it again that is that I don't make predictions first of all, I've often get asked what's the next big thing, and I always give the same answer if I knew I'd be doing it. you know that's why discoveries are called discoveries. I certainly don't make predictions about the future except for two trillion years in the future. There are areas, however, where there are w- where which seem promising, and promising areas are, you know, where areas where we have new windows on the universe. We have new windows on the universe in space. The James Webb Space Telescope, the new, the new telescopes looking for extrasolar planets, uh, new new probes of the cosmic microwave background. Those are all new windows that could open up profound discoveries. The Large Hadron Collider is a new window on the universe, and even the new the new kinds of quantum engineering our new windows on the way materials are set up and that might provide breakthroughs not just in computing but in 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 the development of interesting and exciting materials that may do interesting things Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i see
0: and i i'm trying to figure out Mm. I'm trying to explain why is it that I'm kind of totally failing at this interview. What do you think?
1: Well, you are trying you're failing at this interview, you just said? Yes,
0: yes, I'm trying to figure out how is it I can do better job at what I do right now via the scientific method. What would your suggestion be? Where are the the places where I can engage better with you your material uh, and so on.
1: Um, well, I'd have to review the tape after the fact and say, could you have asked more provocative questions? But it seems to me you're doing a fine job. So um, um, if, if you weren't, I would have I said, you know what, I think we're done a long time ago. I've done that before. And maybe we are done. Maybe if we, maybe we've reached everything you want to. Look, I mean, the bottom line is people sometimes. So the question is, if you asked all the questions that you thought were worth asking? And have you gotten have you have you gotten the insights you wanted to? And if and if you've gotten them in less time, then that's fine. I often do TV interviews, and they're used to doing old, or TV things, and people devote an hour because they say it's going to take us a while to get this. But it turns out, for one reason or another, we get to we get to what they wanted in ten minutes, and they're surprised. But that's fine. We can quit. So maybe so the question I have for you is, you know, maybe we've maybe we've gotten everything you could get out of me, and and then we did it in a. An, in an, in an hour instead of an hour and 20 minutes.
0: (laughs) Okay. So Lawrence, if I were to ask you, what's the best place for people to find more about you and your work?
1: Oh dear. Well, um, I, I don't try not to keep track of it. I know first of all, my webpage, which is kraus.faculty.asu.edu, tends to have, it has links to all my articles and all my pieces and my, and the events of where I'm going to speak. So that's one place. Um, you know, I, 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 I tweet, unfortunately, I suppose. And I L Kraus one is my Twitter handle. And I talk about my events and some of my, when I have an interesting paper out, I try to talk about that. There are other sites that have produced, um, that exist that I, I don't keep a hundred percent track of, but there's one site that I know tries to incorporate every video I have in every, 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 uh, and it's prepared by a woman in Canada and, um, uh,
0: She has like the best of Lawrence
1: Krauss 1 and 2. and I mean, there's all these people, she's done it for a lot of people from Feynman and everyone else. It's a great resource to go to, I think, because it's all in one place. Um, So you can go there, but I I don't keep track of the best place to find me. I just do what I do.
0: Let me throw in a couple of perhaps audience questions here. uh, I think his name is Sean Roy. He says, I was curious to know Dr. Krause's perspective on health and life extension science as being done by Dr. David Sinclair in Harvard or Dr. Aubrey de Grey in the Sense Foundation. As I would assume growing old, suffering from severe ill health and decrepity, then dissipating into nothingness nothingness does not sound all that appealing, perhaps.
1: Well, it may not be appealing, but it's the way the world seems to work. So look, uh, I I think um, there's a lot of Look, I'm not an expert. There's a lot of interesting work done on extending human lifespan. We already have. We live now twice as long as we did a few hundred years ago. So that works. Uh, I certainly don't find the idea of immortality very attractive. By the way, uh, I mean as, kind of. as, as as Woody as Woody Allen, as Woody Allen says, um, eternity is a long time, especially near the end. And uh, and the point is, there's a big difference from living a long time to living forever. And uh, and and uh, I think. Um, uh, not only do I doubt it being possible, but I, I don't see it as particularly attractive. Extending human lifetime, I think, is a is attractive, and I think you know people. On the other hand, it would have interesting and, and potentially greatly negative consequences for society. If people live two hundred years, the question of how long you, you can't, how long you can be gainfully employed, is an interesting. Well, it's the same as the question with artificial intelligence doing all the work. Ultimately society that pays people to just live. And that's fine. I am I think that's in the long run, the future, if we're going to have a sustainable society, but, um, but I think, uh, having a lot of time to reflect and enjoy the world is great. And and I'm, I'm glad that people are, are trying to allow people to live more productive, healthy lives, uh, uh, where they can enjoy their moment in the sun. But you know, I don't, um, I, I'm not an expert on it. And I certainly don't think it's likely, um, Uh, You know, eternity or infinite lifespan does not seem to me to be either likely or desirable. Mm
0: -hmm. And I'm not going for eternity or immortality myself, too. But one thing that I've learned is that I don't want to die when I don't want to die. And that's what happens to most humans right now. And if I were to give you another quote by Woody Allen, of course, is when he said that on death that is he said is I don't want to be immortal through my work I want to be immortal through not dying
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah I know and, and I think and, and that's you know and, and that's a big 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 thing I think on the other hand when people want to die um, we should resp- uh, you know with and have good reasons for it that's why I'm happy to be uh, that I live uh, uh, among other places in Oregon which has a which has an assisted suicide law so that's great
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is why it's so beautiful behind you there with the greenery and everything. It's fantastic. Okay, so uh, Lawrence, we've talked today for 80 minutes or so, give or take. What in your view, is the most important thing, or what should you want us to take away from this conversation with Lawrence Krauss? You know, and again, I kind of feel that I totally mishandled it, to be honest. That's my own I personal
1: subjective. I was, well, that's good. I, you shouldn't feel, my opinion is, you shouldn't feel that way. I think you asked interesting questions that were different, uh, that tried to take me in a different direction. I get interviewed every day. And so, um, you know, I think there were there are interesting insights that came out of this, at least maybe not interesting, but different. <laughs>
0: but that's the point. But I feel that we I couldn't quite connect like and I think that was my fault. In a way, maybe it's because I haven't slept the last two days because of the flu. Well,
1: don't be too hard on yourself. You can try it again another time. You know, some of all experiments work the first time. In fact, most don't.
0: I'd love that. I'll use that as an excuse to get you again one at a time. Uh Probably in a year or two in person, I promise I'll do it properly, like you deserve, like I did it with Dr. Kaku. But going going back to the question, what's the most important message you want to send?
1: The world is an amazing place, and it doesn't need myth and superstition, but it needs uh, open questioning and awe and wonder. And if you enter life that way, then then um, then you, I think you you can appreciate both yourself and nature better and um, ultimately make um, have an impact on yourself and those around you, which is positive.
0: I could never disagree with that, which is why I actually wrote an article called The World is Transformed by Asking Questions, uh, and Dr. Lawrence Krauss, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on my show today. Thank you very much for being with us.
1: Oh, well, Thank you, and, and you take care. I hope your cold gets better. And I certainly agree that that's the way we transform the world by asking questions. So you just keep on asking questions, okay?
0: I promise I will. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation.